Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Branch. The marketplace is being disrupted by firms that were built on digital platforms. Their agility, foundation of data, analytics, and modern technology position these firms advantageously in a world that wants personalization, speed, and simplicity of engagement. Which companies will thrive and which will get crushed by the powerful forces in the global business landscape now at work? How will legacy organizations compete with digital giants like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Alibaba, the list goes on and on. Today's guest is Ray Wong, Principal Analyst, Founder, and Chairman of Constellation Research. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Disrupting Digital Business, and is also the author of an upcoming book about digital giants and the future of business called Everybody Wants to World the World. Ray, great to have you on the show today. You know, it, it's interesting to me how many guests I have on the show who I have never met in person, or in some cases, never even talked to in person, but who I follow on social media virtually every day. I think we followed each other on Twitter for over five years and pretty much aligned on a lot of our vision of what the future may bring. But I don't know if either of us expected the disruption in the marketplace that occurred a year ago. While the impact on health and social norms will be remembered forever, the change to business also happened overnight. From a business and competitive perspective, what do you believe were the biggest changes in the marketplace that came out of the pandemic? You know, it's a great point, Jim. I'm so glad to be here and thank you for having me. It's so nice to connect like visually. We've never done this yeah, before. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> so yeah, you know, on the business side, I would say that, you know, the biggest change is we, we suddenly discovered what digital should be. Um, some people put digital channels up and they're like, great, I got a mobile app, but what else does it do? And so we stretched the limits of digital from a couple areas, one from the channel side. The second one was really from a business model perspective thinking about what you can do. And then the monetization aspect came into play. So those three things started the digital uh, portion, really understanding where you can actually put those three forces to work. But the other factors that are bigger is really we rethought what it meant, what life means, um, how do we interact um, with that from a business point of view? And that hit everything from remote work, remote access, uh, to thinking about your daily life patterns. And, and that changes how we actually engage, not just from a business standpoint, but it's also thinking about what happens at the competitive level. Uh, when do we actually jump in? Um, and so, the companies that got analytics, that understood automation and understood AI are the ones that are gonna come out of this pandemic. And what I mean by analytics is we used to start you know, the day just doing our normal thing. We had a task list and then we ended the week with a report that said, hey, here's how we all did. And that was retrospective. Well, what happens now is, you know, we start the day with analytics. We carry out the rest of the day with analytics and reporting, and we end the day with analytics and metrics. And the collection of that is being automated, right? It's not just what we enter, it's all the things that's happening around us. And that's the ambient nature of that collection. And what that information is doing, it's building these big data-driven digital networks. These are the platforms that are powering the future businesses. And that collection of data is important because what it does, those digital feedback loops are providing signal intelligence 
systems that tells us things from what do you price? Uh, what's your supply chain look like? How do you order? Uh, when do you actually introduce something? What products are being missing? How do people feel? What's the customer satisfaction? And that's what's powering those competitive dynamics that are going to change the market for quite some time. You realize quickly too, like who cares if you can order easily if there's nothing on the back end, if there's no inventory supply, everybody around the world suddenly discovered what the term supply chain was. And as you can see, you know, as you think about what that means from a finance perspective, it now means that everybody has been given democratized access to connections, to information, to insight, and to also participate in the financial system. Well, what's interesting too from the analytics side is organizations are realizing that the power of analytics internally is great and it's amazing. It's growing so fast. But the power of analytics really is how do you deploy that so the customer knows, the consumer knows that you know them. You know, it doesn't do any good if Amazon knows everything I buy and can get reports on where I purchased and what I did until they tell me how that analytics is helping my experience. And, and I think when we're going to look at, you know, the privatization of data and, and how consumers can take control back a little bit on their, their data use, it's really the, the ability for a consumer to say, I don't mind you using my data is all going to be in the value transfer. You know, I don't, I don't mind paying a hundred and some dollars a month for Amazon to have all my information because they make my life easier. On the other hand, if my financial institution collects a lot of insight, but never shows that they know me or looking out for me and will reward me, then the, there's a big gap. In your first book, Disrupting Digital Business, you provided an outline for organizations to focus on, including new leadership paradigms, the increased use of data, the importance of digital marketing, the revised format of work and matrix commerce. The book was written five years before COVID was even a term that we knew. Looking back, which of your trends were the closest to what actually occurred once COVID took place? I would say that the increased use of data and the more importantly, those new leadership paradigms that people are using to manage, especially the data side. Uh, and what we talked a little bit on the data, we didn't realize that these big data-driven digital networks, these DDDNs and platforms were going to emerge the way they did. Part of the book, when we first wrote, was talking about where digital transformation was headed. And that's carried out. There's nothing wrong with what's been said. It's just that the game has changed. And this game is really what's happening with the digital giants. And the digital giants have taken this use of data and taken it to the next level. And I think that's you know, what we didn't anticipate was the speed of this occurring, where we used to have industries that would go from you know regional players to national players to international players to at some point there'd be oligopolies to duopolies. These digital giants are starting out as monopolies on day one and then being put into competition on day two by another monopoly jumping in to monetize. And that's the big difference. So in your upcoming book, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, you use recent research interviews to provide a guide as to which kind of companies will thrive and which will get crushed by the powerful forces now at work. What will be the biggest differentiator between winners and losers in the future? I think the winners are the ones that actually have a few factors. The first one is they understand data supremacy and how 
and why it's so important to win on getting not just the high quality level data, but the most amount of high quality data. And those are insights, right? Location or context areas in terms of someone's process or the time or the weather or what they're doing. And, and I think, you know, in, in a process, that's the first part. But the second piece is these companies are disintermediating customer relationships. And you see that, for example, with a company like DoorDash. You could order food from you know, your local restaurant all the time, but they now own the customer relationship because the orders are coming and the deliveries are coming from DoorDash. But DoorDash doesn't own the customer. It doesn't own the, it doesn't own the restaurant. It doesn't own the driver, but it does own the customer. And I think that's an important differentiator um, between those winners and losers. And then another factor that we do talk about is the fact that these companies have a long-term mindset. They're okay losing tons of money so long they're gaining market share and they're gaining number of deliveries or daily active users or depending on what that important metric is. And you're seeing this all over the place. I mean, you saw that in the financial world, you know, with Robinhood, you know, free trades, yeah. free commissions, but the data is being sold to other institutions to understand signal intelligence. And so the trade-off of having a free trade was having that advanced warning or that digital feedback loop of, you know, what was hot, what areas were more important. And you're also seeing a lot of companies take social media scrapings. Now you saw that fund that was done by Dave Portnoy. I mean, you know, the EFT is basically scraping social media signals to actually inform what markets, what portfolios, what stocks to bet on. And you're going to see more and more of these types of platforms pop up. Well, it's interesting because when you think about it, in most cases, the consumer is benefiting, whereby the data is being used to understand what I need, when I need it, how I want it delivered. And you look at things like DoorDash and Uber Eats and things of this nature, and it really makes the efficiency of, of a local restaurant just that much better. They, they, they let you know, hey, do you want to order the same thing again? Here's what you did. They give you a tracking code on where it is at any point. So, you know, what used to be only done by Amazon is now done by the local restaurant or the local retail store. You know, it's interesting. I'm wondering, is, is the gap between who the winners and the losers will be widening? I mean, how do firms play catch up? when change is happening faster than ever before and will never happen this slowly again? It's a great question. And I think the gaps between winners and losers is widening. Uh, and you're seeing it across the board. Think about the mom and pop restaurants. Are they going to survive? Um, they might do okay unless they have a very special niche. And, and so you're either bulking up or you're becoming more specialized. And that's really where the winners are popping up. The losers are trying to do everything in between and they're in the middle and there's really no room for the middle anymore. Um, but it's the same customers. The customers haven't changed, right? The person that's coming in for a 99 cent slice of pizza is the same one that might go buy gourmet pizza for $30, right? Or might spend $10 on delivery and $20 from DoorDash from a ghost kitchen, right? And so, so this is kind of the challenge, which is really, how do I fit in this shifting market where I'm either going after the value play or I'm paying something that has brand value, right? That's the first gap between winners and losers. The second one is if you own the customer data and the customer relationship and if you've not given it up, then you actually have a shot. But if you've actually arbitraged it out because you don't want to invest in delivery, you don't want to invest in a front-end mobile app, right? And you think you can just skate by by being a supplier, then you better be really good because the larger those 
partners get, the more likely they're going to build out those capabilities. And suddenly there'll be a pizza like your pizza available on the menu. Right. And this has happened to companies like Domino's, like Domino's won the battle for digital transformation. I mean, you know where your pizza is when you order it. You it's a mobile app. You can take a picture of the pizza and the AI system on the back end is going to tell you, hey, that was a high quality pizza or not. Right. But the problem is how often do you order from Domino's? At most, maybe once a week, maybe once every two weeks, but you're ordering from DoorDash at least three to four times a week. And in fact, they can just offer pizza and they don't need Domino's. So especially in financial services, we're seeing the bigger firms get bigger. The mid-asset and smaller firms playing catch-up and the big tech firms entering financial services using data and customer insights as the basis for winning. You know, we've seen this with Google, where where Google now is setting up a platform where they will partner with financial institutions and they'll deliver probably a better and more targeted checking account offering to consumers that may extend well beyond your physical footprint. But to your point, how do legacy financial services firms survive or get out of simply being the utilities or the, the dumb rails if they're giving away that relationship aspect or put another way, you know, is it kind of like the Trojan horse? If, you, if I was a mid-sized firm, while it may look good on the front end to get a lot more accounts, the reality is I can't get out of that relationship with Google because, you know, if they do it well, they've done what I can't do and I can't unwind that situation, can I? <laughs> so we have the challenge, just like Uber versus the black cabs, right? Or the Uber versus the local yellow taxi service. And I think that's what we have to realize. How do we actually get out of that? And the challenge is the fintech firms are actually going after DeFi. They're basically going after the areas where legacy financial services firms haven't done a good job. So maybe it's account intermediation. Maybe it's an ACH call. Maybe it's something that they're not doing well. They've basically figured out how to break things down to the point where they're specialists in one area and doing it really, really well at high volume and taking the highest profitable areas with the highest volume away from the legacy financial services firm. And it's the same playbook that you've seen that's been happening to retail is happening to financial services. It's the same playbook that's been happening to, you know, uh, ride sharing services that's played out to taxi cabs. And so the large legacy financial services firms have to figure out, do they get even bigger covering everything or do they start specializing. And, you know, you said something earlier, Jim, that was very astute, right? The KYC processes to know your customers have been pretty one way. They need to start inverting that information to actually service their customers better and use more information to actually figure out how to get to more personalized services, especially in the higher ends of the market. Well, it's interesting. You look at the big tech play and, and they're not, they don't want to be banks. No, nobody really wants to be well, a Well, they bank won't be allowed that. to be banks. Oh, exactly. Think- and, and even if they could, they're just structured wrong. They don't want the regulations and everything else. But beyond that, though, I mean, you said it earlier, the bigger firms are the digital giants. The smaller firms are maybe a community-based organization that can do well in their niche or in their community. But really, it's those mid-sized organizations that they're really caught between a rock and a hard place because they don't have the investment capability of investing in everything that's needed. And they're they're not so small that they can build that niche marketplace very easily. So you really get in a situation, we're seeing on the fintech side too, that the investment or the dollars are going to the biggest and the best and sometimes the smallest, but the middle market is really being squeezed out. And, and you know, in the financial services, we're seeing some middle market firms combining together 
and I liken it to way back before you were in, in the services area, but uh, the reality was the, the financial institutions that they combined during the savings loan crisis were saying, maybe we can combine four savings loans to make a great bank. And it just didn't happen. And now financial institutions are saying, maybe we can combine a couple different mid-market asset financial institutions and make it a great financial institution that's big enough to be digital. But it gets down to legacy leadership, doesn't it? I mean, where you really have a situation where, yes, you can make it bigger, but it doesn't necessarily mean you change your stripes. Bigger is not necessarily better. And the lack of a leadership culture to drive that is, is really going to be the hard part. But what can happen is a series of partnerships and tools that actually create joint venture business models. And for example, let's say there's not an investment in technology spending. And, and banks typically spend a good amount in technology, but let's say to spend the same amount dollar value as a large bank or as a big tech company, they're probably going to have to pull together the resources of 10 to 12 regional banks, right? So if you put 10 to 12 regional banks together with assured services to go out and deliver on, you know, easy cashless transactions, peer-to-peer payment networks, the ability to support crypto and tokens. There's something there that they could do that could make that easier. Um, You've seen how NCUA has done a great job, you know, over the past, you know, two decades of actually creating standards, making it easier to create an ATM network from scratch. It's those types of agreements that are going to have to be in place for the digital world. So how important is innovation to the ability to compete? And do you see most innovations being focused on the ability to drive speed and simplicity? I think that's one aspect, speed and simplicity. But I think the other important one is really reestablishing and reinforcing that customer experience and that customer relationship. You need that in banking. You know, for example, I I bank at a large bank, one of the top three banks. I hate that bank. I really do. I really do. The only person oh, saving I, them. I know that feeling really was. As my listeners know, I don't name names, but I rail on them all the time. Yep. I hate that bank. And the only thing saving them is the banker that's there. And that's not even the private banker. I hate the private banker because she's always trying to upsell me on something I don't need. There's right. just a really darn good banker there. And she has 10 of my accounts and about 50% of my portfolio. And it's because she's good. And every time they put someone else in place, I say no. I tell the management team, I will move all my accounts. I mean, it's yeah. it's it comes down to that. But, you know, I'm also at a certain other bank because they're open from nine to six and the other banks all close early and they close at 2 p.m. on a Saturday. And I need a bank that's open to four. So so you can see that, you know, there's an element of the speed and simplicity and there's an element of customer experience and there's melee efficiency. I hate all the banks because of all their multi-factor authentication, the recording of my voice to see if there's a voice print, the sending to an offshore contact center that can't help me. Like that doesn't work, right? So, but you know, there's, there's certain things that you want to be able to do. Like I don't have a debit card because I don't want the liability. So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor of the podcast. Is your organization trying to embrace digital banking transformation in 2021? Are you trying to elevate the customer experience? Figure out what technology you want to implement to improve the customer journey. Look at data analytics to really better understand and personalize the customer experience. And you're trying to make it so that more of your employees can buy into and be part of your digital banking transformation. If this sounds like you, I ask you to reimagine banking with our newest podcast sponsor, Microsoft. They give you the opportunity to unlock new opportunities at speed throughout innovative 
business models, deliver differentiated customer experiences across channels, products, and services, and redefine new ways of banking. Microsoft and its partner ecosystem help banks to achieve differentiation through sustainable growth, streamlining core systems, reducing cost and risk, and delighting customers and employees. If you're in the midst of a journey, trying to figure out what to do next, maybe trying to find out what other organizations are doing to lift up their experience level, I really encourage you to look at Microsoft. For more information, visit Microsoft.com slash financial services. So welcome back to Banking Transform. I am joined today by Ray Wong, Principal Analyst, Founder, and Chairman of Constellation Research, and author of the best-selling book, Disrupting Digital Business, and an upcoming book about digital giants and the future of business entitled, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. So before the break, we're discussing the research and findings of your newest book, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants, which I love the headline. Since the pandemic, has the awareness of what is possible in the digital world from firms like Instacart, Zoom, Netflix, Amazon, increased the table stakes for what consumers want in every facet of their life? Yeah, I think you're going to see a big shift, right, from where you buy uh, to how you eat uh, to what actually happens in terms of, you know, the types of, you know, services that are being offered to you. And and part of the reason is like these digital giants are basically starting out by dominating a market. And I'll give you an example. Let's say I made you an offer, Jim. I'm going to say $15 for a flat screen TV, 75 inches for the next five years. And I'm going to include the home warranty program for it as well so that this tv's warranty if something's broken will come fix it unless you like smash it by accident you're really mad that you know his favorite sports team lost okay yeah. so so would you take that offer it's 900 dollars for five years but 15 dollars a month and includes the warranty program I mean, oh yeah in a nanosecond because in some cases we had a guest on that bought a volvo like that he plays a monthly fee but what happens is the car continually gives the newest model so, you know, building the subscription model in almost anything is valid. And let's say for $25 a month, any point you could upgrade, but you'd have to sign another five-year contract and you get the next set of TVs that you need. You can do one yeah. upgrade in that five-year period. Sounds um, like my Apple phone, right? There we go. Yeah. And so yeah. what would happen to a company like LG and Samsung if everybody signed up for that and they didn't offer that? In about less than three years, you would bankrupt them. Right now, to do that, you'd have to have huge underwriting. You'd have to raise. Maybe you have to get to about a hundred billion on the back end to be able to take out the entire world, right? In that space, so you might raise ten billion to actually start it and take a certain market and go after that space. But over a period of time, pretty soon you'd be subscribing to the TV for fifteen dollars a month. I might do your kitchens for a hundred dollars a month. I might do your HVAC units for one hundred fifty dollars a month. And then what happens? We're basically going to come down from 100 different manufacturers of kitchens and HVACs and TVs to maybe about 20. And they're all being driven. The relationship, again, is not with the HVAC manufacturers or the refrigerator manufacturers or the, the banking manufacturers. It's really with the organizations that put these subscription services together. And so when we think about that in terms of banking, think about what happened when we actually combined investment banking and commercial banking back again, right? The ability to full service trading 
digital wallet, the ability to actually do your P2P payments, the ability to actually, you know, take up other types of assets, you know, alternative assets in the mix, right? That's what's happening. Um, and, and that's going to change uh, the way we look at those traditional banking relationships. Um, if you think about what I'm, you know, as in another example, if you think about what would happen, you know, in terms of, you know, not just with the food delivery services we talked about in ghost kitchens, just think about what would happen if we did that with clothing, right? We're starting yeah. to see that subscription-based clothing where you buy stuff, return it, it gets into a used area. There's recycling that's going on. So fast fashion meets, you know, ability to actually buy used at the same time as introduce something new into the portfolio, that's going to happen. And so we see this going on in all facets of life. We're actually seeing the subscription models. We're seeing, you know, the ability to actually create trading networks and the ability to actually exchange things at a P2P level. So you, you go beyond the subscription model line vision and you take it to more of a, a platformification situation where you can monetize businesses differently than you have in the past from Alibaba and Amazon to organizations that are expanding their solution set in an open banking environment where they can actually take revenues from one platform to fund the other. For instance, I've mentioned before, what, what keeps Amazon from saying, you know, we'll pay you $200, $300 to open a brand new checking account with us and have that funded from not only the, the fee that I pay for Amazon Prime, but also from the retail relationship. And the new look of how platforms can work and how they can build, and you don't have to have every dynamic of it play out financially well. I mean, that's how Tencent and Alibaba have, have really built is to expand the marketplace overall to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to go beyond that. And, and, you know, in banking, you know, how close are financial services to the ability to bring health care services to the table and maybe even monetize the ability to be healthy? Um, do you see platformification as a model for the future? We definitely do. And, and I would say this, notion of large networks, the digital giants are all pushing into healthcare and financial services. And part of that reason that they're doing that is because these large networks, those are easy cross-sells using data as an advantage and using their ability to build digital channels to monetize what's going on. Now, will Amazon get into banking? They probably can't in this market, but they're definitely doing lending to small businesses, right? Yeah. So they're extending credit, which is really part of banking already, right? And they're extending credit. And Google's offering checking accounts but doing it through existing financial institutions so it's and relationship. apple's offered a credit card through goldman oh exactly Sachs, right yeah. and so we're seeing that occur and facebook if they had gotten their act together would have built a large cryptocurrency right but faced a lot of resistance on the regulator side and is going to continue that but in countries like china where they really don't care about that alibaba can actually start doing payments and they do right and alipay is the biggest payment network in the world if you think about it um, and you're seeing yeah. that happen as well like in the recent public you know ipo of coupon they do coupon pay Right. And so yeah. in some countries, you're going to see these large networks offer more than just the social networking and a digital ad platform. There are financial institutions, there are healthcare institutions, there are retail institutions. You see that with Reliance Industries in India, right? They've combined retail, telecom, and they can actually start doing a whole bunch of financial services if they choose to. I mean, it gets down to the very beginning of our, our discussion. You kept on saying that the foundation, this is data, analytics, insights and be able to deploy them both internally, but also externally. So what are the traits of a digital giant winner? I know it goes well beyond size and technology alone. 
Yeah, there are seven traits that are important to be building a digital giant. And I think this is the important part everybody wants to figure out. The first one is you really have to reinvent your organization. Like, what is that mission and purpose? How do we actually deliver a product? And what kind of teams do we want? What marketplaces do we want to go after? And is there any kind of financial engineering that has to happen that will make this a different approach? But the second piece is you want to build the biggest network you can find, whether it's, you know, 50 million users, 100 million devices, but find the biggest network you can find or disintermediate someone else's network by partnering with them or actually going after that network. And that's where owning the customer relationship is important. Because if you don't own the customer relationship, it doesn't matter what other assets you have. Um, That customer relationship is built first, maybe because you can deliver something better than someone else, but you don't have to own the infrastructure to do that delivery. It may make it easier, but you definitely have to own that customer relationship. And then we're competing for data supremacy. How do we actually go out and capture that right level of data? I mean, we're getting to precision decisions. These data-driven digital network platforms are what's driving it. And we've got to figure out how to turn that data into money. And that's where the digital monetization comes into place that we talked about earlier. Ad search, goods, services, subscriptions, and memberships. And then we have to figure out how to you know, create joint venture models where it makes sense. Partnerships are really important to go build these out. And then, of course, that long-term growth mindset's important. It's okay to lose millions, hundreds of millions over the next five years if you're growing at the rate of 40, which is what's important. That's the 40% role for SaaS software companies. But more importantly, it's okay if you're gaining market share, if you're gaining networks, if you're building the ability to put the infrastructure in play. Um, You saw this with Amazon with the way they built out distribution centers. They had 100 distribution centers planned in North America, right? And that's been important. But what did they have before that? They had partnerships with FedEx and UPS. And in those partnerships, they learned what was important in the last mile delivery and logistics, and now they're going out to build it, right? So they've turned the partnership around, and now they're basically going after that same last mile space. I mean, if you've ever driven up and down any of the interstates during the middle of the pandemic, if you're on I-95 or if you're on I-5, it doesn't (laughs) matter. It's all Amazon smile trucks everywhere. And now, you know, they're delivering every day of the week. They've completely upended FedEx and UPS because they now have their own distribution network and it's only getting bigger because it, it's, it's, it's close to the consumer. I mean, look, look how close in the last four years, Amazon has gotten to every resident. I mean, everybody can point out the closest Amazon warehouse because they see it all the time. You know, we talked about what makes the digital giant winners. How could regulation potentially upend the future of the digital giant? We, we are seeing some of this in China with Alibaba and Tencent. Could governments limit the size and scope of the digital giant leaders? I think so. In every government, you're going to see that occur. Um, they've built out. So in Alibaba's case, and you saw that with the resignation of certain individuals over the last few weeks, yeah. you've seen that with the way they've postponed the Ant Group's IPO, you've seen that with Tencent and you know WeChat, uh, Weibo, sorry, they've been going after their leaders as well. Um, they're doing that because, hey, thank you for building out the infrastructure. It's now time for my cronies to come and take over your, your institutions. That's really what's going on in China at the moment. But in the Western world, you've seen the shakedowns that are going with you know, yeah. Google and Facebook being shaken down by the mm-hmm. Australian government and then the Canadian government. And on one hand, I understand why they're trying to do that. But on the other hand, it makes no sense. And let me be very clear about this. 
These social media networks, these digital giants across the board, they don't need the news organizations. News organizations only account from anywhere from one to 5% of their traffic. But those news organizations need the social networks. And because of that, they're trying to force their way in through regulation and through lobbying in a way the big tech companies have never had to do. And they're basically saying, look, 75% of news is coming from social media or digital networks up to 90% in some countries, you know, we need access. And so it's almost as, as big tech versus big state is the battle that's actually happening. And you're going right. to see this in every industry where people are going to complain that, oh, these companies have gotten too big. Well, you didn't do the work. You lost all your money doing other stuff and you wasted it and you didn't build out your own network. Uh, why are you blaming these folks? Right. So that's well, it's interesting because it's, you know you look at Amazon and the way they built. It was built because consumers want it. Yes. It, it wasn't. It wasn't built just for the sake of building. Now, at the beginning of it, you know, when they took on more and more customers at a loss, you know that that was the reality. As you that brought up earlier, mindset that mindset is so important. Long term mindset, and, and I I don't know how that works in the financial services industry, but you know, again, do people really want the outcome? of you know some of these firms being shrunk especially those that provide daily value to virtually every consumer out there you know that's a that's alibaba intention in china is that you know they're touching almost everybody and credit services would not have been available to the mass market without those organizations using data to democratize the lending opportunities And Jim, you're right. And this is where the regulation has to play a role of making fair and free markets, but also making sure that innovation isn't being quashed and that participants can play in those markets that earn it, right? I think it's really important that earn it because if you're a social media company and you basically have been putting together and building these networks over time, while a publicly traded newspaper has been blowing all their money with sure stock buybacks and dividends without investing in this area because they had short-term, short-sighted boards, then you know what? They don't get the play, you know? And and I think forcing the play by regulation makes no sense. We're seeing in the banking industry that the small and mid-sized organizations continue to spend more time and money fighting change and fighting the ability for other organizations to get into the business that actually will serve the consumer better than they do at innovation, partnering with solution providers to provide the better experience that consumers want. I mean, you talk about working with your your financial institution. I talk about the fact that, yes, I still have my business bank. I still have my personal bank. But I've expanded the number of organizations I work with to provide me financial services because my financial institutions don't do as well as PayPal on my business side, Acorns on my personal banking side, and they don't have a, a comparable solution. Now, will I close my accounts? Maybe not. Have I distributed my relationship? Oh, entirely. In fact, I am more likely to have a relationship on my business side with PayPal and view it that way than I do with my business bank. My business bank has not provided me any added value and they continually stumble on their personalization efforts. While on the other hand, PayPal knows me every day. And I know if I need a line of credit, I know where I'm going to go, especially short term, because the, the rate difference won't make a difference on a short term basis. But You know, when you look at digital transformation that financial institutions are doing, what is the most likely element that could derail digital transformation efforts at at financial institutions? Well, I think you've talked a lot about that, and that's really the legacy inertia that's there. 
right? And and it's we've always done it this way. We're always going to do it this way. And and some things should be that way. I, I don't disagree. But others, such as you know, I need to get to a safety deposit box, and you're shut down for COVID, and I actually have to call this number that gets me to an 800 routing that takes me about three hours to get to a safety deposit box because it's in queue at a contact center that's not even here. Yeah. I don't think that's going to work. Can I at least do an online appointment for a safety deposit box visit with the bank that I need to get to? And you can tell me what the availability is so I can schedule and be there at the right time. I mean, it's simple things like this. And a lot of it comes back to having a sense of empathy, building a design thinking mindset, trying to put yourself in your stakeholder's shoes and trying to help them figure out how do we minimize that process for the stakeholder and also make it super efficient and repeatable inside the organization so it can be offered as a service. And that servitization becomes very important. And the understanding of how that servitization is used, which is the analytics, is really the differentiator. Well, it's interesting because when you look at it, when COVID happened, many financial institutions weren't prepared to offer digital services or they weren't prepared to offer services in a digital platform. And you start to see the legacy thinking where you saw more and more organizations simply putting on a mobile device, exactly what their new account people did at the desk, which meant it was a 10 to 15 minute process as opposed to being the the one minute process of the Apple card or the two minute, uh, five minute process of rocket mortgage. And you, all of a sudden the consumer's going, what am I missing here? You know, why is it so <laughs> difficult? And why are you making me do what you wanted to do in the branch? And that's a branch mentality. You know, it, it's interesting, but, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because the, the handwriting's on the wall. If any organization is waiting for the change to stop so they can catch up, it, it's not going to happen. We both know that. And I think what's interesting is leadership of financial institutions know this also. They do. They know what is needed. They know how to fix it because there's a lot yep. of solution providers out there every day saying, we can bring you to the promised land faster, easier, and less costly than anybody could do internally. Number three, they also know that you know it's a matter of time before that gets displaced if they don't change. The problem is changes. Change sucks. It I mean, does. it's not easy. It does. And, and you know, we see it on a personal basis. We see it on an organizational basis that while we all talk a good game, you know, most, especially what I call the mid-sized organizations, the leadership is surrounded by other people that went through the management training program with them, and they're hearing all the things that they're used to hearing. And unless you put somebody in there that's going to be disruptive, you're going to have the same situation they had before. So finally, Ray, before we get off the phone here, how do people get a hold of your new book? Because I'm looking forward to see it. It's a great question. Um, it's available on Amazon for pre-order at the moment. It shows up July 13th. That's the launch. And that's published by HarperCollins Leadership. So you can pick it up. You know, Probably Amazon and most other booksellers will have it as well. So Great. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Hey, Jim. Thanks a lot. Always fun. What a great interview with Ray Wong. Um, it's interesting in that his perspective on what the digital giant's advantage is should scare the living daylights out of legacy financial institutions. It's not a factor of getting bigger, it's a factor of getting better, of taking the data you have and deploying it to consumers and to small businesses and the corporate clients in such a way that you won't be disrupted. You know, this is a wake up call, this is a warning shot around the potential of the digital giants eating our lunch. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform. Just rated as a top five banking podcast. 
If you enjoyed today's interview, be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. You know, it means a lot to the team and it also helps validate what we're doing and helps us get great guests. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience and financial marketing for the digital bank report. And by the way, we just published our 2021 retail banking trends and priorities report, which is always a favorite. This has been the production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, our audio engineer, Sean Will Hoffman, and our video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, embrace change, take risks, and disrupt yourself and your organization. We'd never admit it, but deep down, we all get at least some pleasure from bad things happening to somebody we don't like. History's full of stories about bitter enemies being mutually horrible. Usually nothing good comes of it. But sometimes, sometimes, you get soul singers James Brown and Joe Tex, or 17th century nun Sor Juana, and the entire Catholic Church duking it out and dramatically changing our world. On Beef with Bridget Todd, we tell the stories of those petty feuds behind some of the greatest art, innovation, and global events. Listen to Beef wherever you get your podcasts.